0: A couple of weeks ago, we started in Matthew chapter 1. And as much as I would like to sit and go over a whole bunch of new stuff with you tonight, I've only got about nine minutes to tell you everything in Matthew chapter 1 that's important. Um, Don't think I'll be able to do that. If If you were here there, or if you were here when we discussed that, we started and said, wait a minute, what happened before Matthew 1? And there was what we call the 400 silent years where God didn't speak. There was no prophets, there was no angels. It was almost as though God pressed the pause button. And it was silence in terms of theology or anything that was happening as far as God speaking to man. So imagine now you're in you've been in captivity for at least 70 years when the Babylon's Babylonian uh, empire conquered Jerusalem. They were in captivity for 70 years. Then they were let loose. And then the Greek empire came in, or the Medo-Persians came in. And then they were set loose to go build the temple with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. And then the Greeks came in. And then after the Greeks came in, you had the Romans came in. So when we left the Old Testament, the Medo-Persians were there. And when we open up the New Testament, now we're under the Romans. We were speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, but now the world's speaking Greek. In the Old Testament, we had the temple. In the New Testament, now, times we've got this new thing called the synagogue. So things have changed. So the mindset of a Jewish person is what's going on here? And now, for the first time in 400 years, you've got God speaking. We talked about the book of Matthew and that he was speaking to the Jewish nation about King of the Jews, King Jesus mark was going to talk about the servant luke was going to talk about as a man and john was going to talk about him as god but one other thing that matthew did he spoke about what jesus said and if you notice matthew's got 28 chapters in it It goes into long details about what jesus talked about mark has 16 chapters what jesus did very quick to the point very quick for the roman mind Matthew was talking to the Jews. So his whole point and everything that we're going to talk about tonight, Matthew 1 and chapter 2, we're talking to a Jewish mindset that's been waiting for their deliverer, waiting for their Savior, and God hasn't spoken for 400 years. And 16 times in the book of Matthew, he's going to say, this was done so that it might be fulfilled what was written by whoever that prophet was. So the Jews understood what he was saying. The Literary devices and things that he talked and used the Jewish mind would understand So he was talking to the Jews and he said I'm going to show you that Jesus Has a royal genealogy. He is the rightful heir because the book of Matthew starts out and it says Where'd it go? I was in another verse there it says, "The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham." So he's going to say that this Jesus is the rightful heir as the Son of David, and also he's the rightful heir as the Son of Abraham. So he is going to have the rights to the throne. The Virgin Mary and the virgin birth that we talked we'll talk about in chapter or when uh, Brian talks about, there was no right. the throne because of a virgin birth there was no right then so we had to point out that joseph had a legal right to the throne of david so we go through this genealogy of 42 different names and if you were going to have the genealogy for the son of god would you pick kind of illustrious bold stout-hearted men or would you pick maybe not so maybe not so clean, not so good, maybe sorted past people. Which would you do to to depict the Savior, the King Jesus? Which one would you pick? Well, he didn't pick perfect men. In fact, he did something really unseemly. He actually put women in there. And then the women that he chose, they, they weren't Jewish. You go, what in the world was God thinking? And some of the questions you have, we're going to explore that together. But one thing, realize... Later on in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 6, I think it is one of the verses that's on those questions there, but he says, 642, I think. No, excuse me, 642. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? So in Jesus' ministry, they knew who Jesus was, and they called him, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? And later on they said, but some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? And then they said, and they answered and said to him in verse 52, and you, and you also from, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That's 30 years later. This is what the Pharisees are saying. They recognize Jesus as coming from Galilee we know where you from you're from in fact Philip and Nathaniel when they're having the conversations there Nathaniel says can any good thing come out of Nazareth the mindset of the Jew at that point in time when they thought about Jesus and then on through his ministry was that he came from Nazareth he came from Galilee they didn't put the scriptures together in fact when we get to I won't tell you about chapter 2 So this genealogy was written by Matthew. He was a lowly tax collector. He was was coupled with sinners. In fact, it was so low when Jesus finally said to him, come and follow me, he was so glad that someone finally recognized him as a person, as a human being, that he left everything, all the money and the riches, and he went to follow Jesus. So the stage is set. We have this King Jesus that we're going to say is now the royal, he's of the royal line. God has been silent for 400 years, and now he's going to speak. And what is the first announcement? He's now of this royal line, but how is God going to pull that off?
1: I got to set my timer. <laughs> I go over? No, you're good. Oh, good. No, actually, okay. perfect. So it was great as... Um, as Randy's mentioned, now Matthew takes on basically the story of King Jesus. He's proven here the lineage. He's proven that Jesus is this king and this the fulfillment of the promises from the Old Testament. And as um, Matthew begins here in verse 18 of chapter 1, I'm actually going to read it to you guys really quickly because it's only a few verses. But I think it will help us to get a full understanding of what we're looking at. Because in verse 18, it says, now... The birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph said to her, or I'm sorry, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And so the the picture that we are introduced to or the story we're introduced to immediately by Matthew is all of a sudden um, we're told that Mary is found to be um, with child. Now in the Gospel of Luke, you find a lot more details where Luke goes on to um, give us insight into how Mary found out that she was going to be with child. And it goes into extensive details in letting us know all these things. Now when we get to Matthew, Matthew really doesn't give us that information. We don't understand or we don't know exactly how um, Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. All we know is, as we pick up in verse 18, is that Joseph is aware that Mary is with child, and this happens during the betrothal period. Now, if you guys remember when we looked at this last time, we took the time to look a little bit at the marriage process during this culture. During this culture, um, a marriage uh, between a man and a woman normally would start very young between two parents of a young boy and a young child coming together and agreeing that they were going to bring these two together when they were of age and, and they were going to uh, unite their families together. When they would be of age, the young boy and a and, and young woman now would enter into the first stage of the marriage process, which would be um, having a betrothal ceremony. Now... Once this betrothal ceremony would take place, at this point, they were considered married now. Um, While after the ceremony, they would actually go home individually to each one's family, the husband at that point would normally take off, go home, and would begin to build a home that he was planning on bringing his wife to the moment that they completed the second part of the marriage ceremony. This would be anywhere from six to 12 months. And so we're introduced immediately to this portion of the passage where all of a sudden during this period that they would be considered married. The only way to break this off would be to have a certificate of divorce. This is where Matthew introduces us. Joseph finds out that Mary is with child. The impression is that Joseph might have thought that she would have committed adultery, might have been unfaithful. And that would come with great consequences. And so as our story moves on, we see that Joseph was a just man, and he did not want to put her out publicly. He had every right because of the assumptions made here, because she is to be sanctified and to be set apart now in this union with Joseph, even though they themselves have not consecrated this marriage. But there was an understanding. And so coming to a conclusion that she's pregnant, we can understand the thoughts that would have ran through his mind. And we took the time to look at that last time. I wanted us to think through what was going on through his mind. What would he be thinking? It's very possible he would be thinking, how could she do this? Who is the father? What are people going to think? What are people going to say about her? What are they going to say about me? What are my parents going to say? How am I possibly going to be able to put her away secretly so that nobody knows about what happened. And so all these things you could assume were going through his mind, because as you start going on into verse 20, what you find is that he goes to sleep, the angel um, visits him in a dream, and the Lord comes and speaks to him through this angel, and the first thing that is told to him is, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So you can Take from this that it's very possible the stress of having to make these decisions, the unknown factors, the stress of all this could have created fear and possibly anxiety within Joseph. And it's here in this moment of this great hardship that he's dealing with, trying to figure out what's going on, what am I going to do? that the Lord comes and meets Joseph and begins to not only give him direction in this dream, but also brings comfort to him in the midst of this great difficult place he finds himself in. And so practically speaking, we wanted to look at that as God would bring direction and he would bring comfort to Joseph here very practically in three different ways that we looked at. One is with the reassurance of his presence. In verse 20, you see that the Lord comes And meets him here with the voice of the angel speaking on his behalf to let Joseph know, I'm with you in the midst of this hardship. And we spoke, it's oftentimes as we understand and know that God is with us in the midst of our battles, that that seems to give us strength and the ability to persevere through those difficulties. Now, we also talked about that God would give direction and he would give um, comfort to Joseph through the reassurance of his purpose. One of the things that the angel would tell um, Joseph is, look, there's a reason why Mary is pregnant right now. And the reason that she's pregnant is she is going to have a son and his name is going to be Jesus. Now, that name Jesus in the Hebrew we talked about is Yeshua or uh Yahweh saves. Salvation is of the Lord is basically what we're trying to gather from that. And so within his very name uh, was the description of his mission here on earth to save you and I, to bring salvation. And so as God would be ministering, he's revealing to him, look at the purpose that I have for this son that you're uh, that Mary is carrying. And we took the parallel of that as that word uh, Yeshua saves or yeshua salvation joshua that parallel of the old testament and we talked about how in the old testament moses is this picture of the law and we understand as we look at it that the law moses was never able to take the people into the promised land and so what god would do is he would raise up joshua to be the man who would actually lead the people into the promised land and the parallel being spiritually speaking in our lives that as important as the law was It would never and will not be able to get you and I to be in a right standing with God based upon our keeping of that law. And the reason being is because you and I are sinful beings. We could never be perfect. We could never accomplish every aspect of the law and therefore could never obtain a right standing. And so just as the children of Israel needed their Joshua, so too there's an understanding that we needed someone to come and to deliver us and to do what the law could not do, which was to take us into a right standing with God. That is the purpose of what Jesus had come to do. This is what the angel is speaking to Joseph here. He'd also give him reassurance through promises. Talking about the promises in the Old Testament— all these promises found in the Old Testament. Jesus was a fulfillment of all these things. When Jesus was here on earth, he fulfilled some over 300 different prophecies of the Old Testament, speaking about the Messiah, and the way he would come, how he would be born, where he would be born, to who he would be born, as we looked at the genealogies. All these things were part of the fulfillment of the promises given by God in the Old Testament. And so we understand that the reason Mary was Pregnant through a virgin birth was in order to fulfill Isaiah seven fourteen, the fact that the Messiah would come of a virgin birth, and so all these things we looked at, we we try to play it into our own lives and to understand that just as Joseph was going through these hardships and and it's very practical how God met him there, it very much is the same way how God meets you and I in the midst of our difficulties. It's through the reassurance of his presence. It's through the reassurance of his purpose of the things we're going through and the reassurance of his promises that God is with us, that you and I are not alone. And so these are the things we kind of walk through, and hopefully you'll get a chance to walk through that a little bit. The last part is we just looked at that Joseph was a just man and had great character. He's a just man. He was someone who was selfless, who put Mary above himself, not wanting to uh, let harm come to her. He trusted in God's plan and God's promises, as we saw at the end, that he was obedient to God to do everything that God had asked him to, regardless if he understood everything or not. And then we kind of transition. (laughs)
0: Last week, we jumped into chapter two. And chapter 2 dealt with, it started out, it says, no, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So everything that Brian just shared, after that. Just a second ago, I said we were talking about creating this royal genealogy. And at the very end of Matthew, um, toward the end of Matthew 1.17, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. So it goes from Jacob... To Joseph, the husband of Mary, and as Brian just shared, betrothal was a legal now arrangement. The only way out of that was through a writ of divorce. So when they were betrothed, as far as the royal line was concerned, it was now complete because of the the, the sincerity—not just in sincerity—the power of that betrothal period. It literally completed this chain of events now of the 42 different generations here. So it was a very, very powerful thing. So when when chapter 2 opens up, um, it's not told in any of the other gospels. The story about Herod is not told anywhere else. Why would that be? When we started chapter 1, we said, this is a distinctive Jewish audience. A non-Jewish audience wouldn't care about king of the Jews. It was irrelevant to them. So it was written to the Jewish nation, and that's why we see it here in Matthew. Now it says the wise men came in the days of King Herod. We talked about where those wise men came from. They weren't coming from the Orient. They probably came across from what was then Babylon, and they came over maybe 500 miles or so. We talked about how, well, it says they followed a star. And we Thought about it, and this, if we waited long enough, and we looked up in the sky tonight, we might see a star or two. We may see a planet, and yet, if we see a planet, Venus, it's going to be somewhere, you know, just above the horizon. So, how is that going to lead me to a house? And so, we talked about much like the children of Israel had the the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. That perhaps this was like the Shekinah glory that was leading these. These magi, we talked last time, magi were the same magicians that Daniel actually became the head of during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So these were men that were probably taught by Daniel. They were taught the messianic prophecies. And so for 500 years or so, they were waiting for this day. And they were not Jewish. So when they come into town, they want to know, where is he? who has been born. And it's interesting, in those days, we just said, your genealogy through this process, if you got to prove it. So they want to know, because where is this guy that has been born, that qualifies? Where is that guy that's been born king of the Jews? And it says, all of Jerusalem was aware of them. It was upsetting to Herod, but it was upsetting to the rest of Jerusalem, too. It meant the Pharisees and the scribes, they all knew about it going on because it was the talk in Jerusalem. They probably didn't come on camels. There wasn't three of them. They probably came on some Arabian horses. They probably had 20 or 30 people with them. An entourage coming in and proclaiming, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Remember, Herod had already been declared by Rome king of the Jews. We also discussed last time that Herod had a very unique family. Herod had a number of wives. Uh, One of the wives he killed, he killed his mother-in-law, her mother. He killed two of his oldest sons. He had another son called um, Aristobulus IV. Aristobulus III was his wife's brother. He killed him as well. And then he had four other kids that we talked about. One of those um, children was... Herodias, that was his granddaughter. And so Herodias, then, she married one of the Herods. And when she married one of the Herods, she divorced one of those Herods and married the other one, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was to become the Herod that was going to be wooed and lured by the dancing daughter. And she said, because her mother prompted her, you know, give me the head of John the Baptist. So the first thing we know about Herod's is he was a wicked, evil man. He killed, he was afraid, he was scared. His sons, when they saw what happened, they were concerned because they were involved in relationships that John the Baptist said were not right. You were divorced, but your partners are still alive. It's wrong. Herod's wife didn't like that, so John the Baptist was then offered up, and he was killed. We find out later on that the Herod family was there at the the killing of James and at the imprisonment of Peter. And then Herod Agrippa II was there with Paul when he was there in front of Herod as well. And if you think about it, at the very beginning of chapter 2 here, we see that Herod is going to go out and he is going to slaughter the babies in Bethlehem. And if you think about it, if, if, if Satan knows... A little bit about what the scriptures promises the easiest way to stop God's plan was to kill the child all of history would have changed at that point if the child would have been killed obviously he didn't succeed but then we go on then and now we have Herod's and throughout the time Satan is using Herod's to constantly constantly impact what God was planning to do so this was an evil family that I would say Satan was using in numerous capacities to thwart the purposes of God. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? The saying we often hear today is wise men still seek him. And then what happens in chapter four, later on in Matthew, we see Jesus is now tempted. He's taken up and then now Satan is offering him the king of the world, offering everything he can. So first he tries to kill the child, then we get to chapter four, and then he tries to offer Jesus another way out to thwart the plans of God. But again, it failed miserably. So these magi's, they were noticed by everyone coming in Jerusalem. They were not Jewish. And so when they, Herod found out about it, he's a little bit worried because, he's again, he killed everybody that he thought was going to take his throne away from him. So he asked him, he goes, well, can you find out where this guy was? And so he asked his own scribes and, and uh, chief priests, etc. And they said, oh yeah, we know where he is. It's Micah 5, two. He's going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem. I mean, they knew instantly where it was. And yet, when they found out all of Jerusalem knows. so all the scribes know, everybody knows they're talking about this Jesus now who was born in Bethlehem. And nobody followed the Magi. Imagine if you heard about the Messiah that you've been waiting for, 400 years in silence. God finally breaks the silence, dreams to Joseph, comes to Jerusalem, these magi, they come in, they know enough to say the king of the Jews, they know enough of the scriptures because they had been taught. You can imagine the conversations that were going on. They probably shared how they followed the star. So everyone is abuzz Herod's concerned because everyone is a buzz. Nobody follows, and yet they've been waiting for hundreds of years after being in captivity. And we wonder sometimes about, well, how could people not know today when you look around us and the obviousness of God or what truth is? But even back here, when the Savior was born, people didn't choose to follow him. Things were different. Um, they were indifferent to God himself. They just, they didn't go. They didn't go to follow him. So this is kind of the beginning of the theme. He came to his own and his own received him not. So Christ was now presented to the Jews and they didn't follow. The Magi who were not Jews, the first thing they do is they come and now Mary the mother is there and the child is there. They go to the child and they make their offerings and gifts to the child. If you go to a birthday party today and there's a little baby there usually you'd give the gifts to the parents and they kind of go down to the child and open them up and let them play or put their hands in the cake whatever they're going to do right When the magi came in they saw and they recognized this is he that we've been studying about he's the king. this is the king Jesus, this is the guy and they offered him their gifts. They surrendered and sacrificed everything to get there. And the natural response when they saw the king of the Jews was to offer him gifts. So the Jews rejected, but God gave grace to the Gentiles. And this is the beginning of the story then in the New Testament, chapters 1 and 2, that God shows up and says, there is the king. Everything I promised you through David and through Abraham is going to be fulfilled in this baby here. And then he miraculously conceives the virgin birth. And then he brings the Gentiles in because the Jews wouldn't receive him. And God makes that gift now available. And he creates eventually, after Jesus dies, then he births the church. So we see in the beginning, the first two chapters here, that God is speaking to the Jewish nation in a very unique fashion. And they rejected him. The next chapter in Matthew is chapter 3 and it's going to jump right away to John the Baptist and Jesus as a man. Why did they not talk about anything about his boyhood? Why did we not see that here in Matthew? We see it in Luke, but we don't see it in Matthew. We're going to discuss that at your table. So he broke his silence. He came to Joseph in three James. He stays in Egypt. Then God, by a dream, brings them back. And just as the children of Israel started their journey into their promised land by being imprisoned in Egypt, and then God set them free, Jesus was sent to Egypt, and then God miraculously gave a dream to Joseph and said, it's safe to now come home. So if your goal is to present Jesus as king of the Jews, what do you think this next chapter is going to explore? If you want to explore Jesus as king of the Jews, king of the Jews, the king, what's the next chapter I'm going to explore? Here's the hint. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. That's what they, the last thing they got in Malachi before the Old Testament ended was Malachi three one. It's the hint that God says this is what's next, and that's where he goes. That's it. So what we're going to do now then is we are going to break in, well, you're already at your tables, so we're going to take the next uh, half hour or so, go through those questions. There's probably a lot more questions that you can go through, so find the ones that really kind of stimulate some conversation there. And then we'll, we'll stop, and then we'll break for communion here at about 820, and then we'll close after that. So let's do it. Oh, wow, this is what it's like to see. And I'm legally blind in one eye anyway, so it makes it even harder. So we kind of have to face one another because we won't be able to hear each other.
1: We good, Dave? Well, I just want to welcome everyone at home who's watching. Um, Just welcome as you... Um, At home, we would even ask you now that possibly if you have any elements at home that you would be able to get out maybe some crackers, some juice. At the end of this, um, we're actually going to be going into communion. So a perfect opportunity for you at home to be able to partake of communion with your family, maybe gather your kids, gather your wife, or even if you're by yourself, and and take the time to just uh, really remember what God has done. And even as we communicate and discuss some of the things that we're going through. And so um, I guess we'll introduce ourselves. My name is Brian. Um, so I'm around, you'll see me around, running around every once in a while. And then we have Randy here.
0: Mm-hmm. Randy Dickinson, <laughs> and you've probably seen me around a little bit too. Uh,
1: and we'll be here. John
0: Bush. Awesome.
1: Right on. Well, Randy, you want to lead us in uh, chapter one as we start going through it a little bit?
0: Okay, so um, let's just go through the questions then? Yeah. Okay. Well, the first question we got in front of us: What was God's purpose for starting the New Testament with the genealogy? I mean, of all the things you can think about after four hundred silent years, let's get them pumped up and excited. <laughs> Why would God start with the genealogy?
2: I mean, really, he needed to set the foundation. I mean, that was so much of what the Jewish heritage was. It wasn't just about, you know, the the fact that um, they were Jews. It was really who they were and the Beginning of setting the whole premise of that this was Jesus was really exactly that that where he came that he had the lineage his genealogy can be traced back and then that would be the first step to you know the excite you know you had, you had mentioned about the fact that time and time again Matthew is all Matthew brings to fa- uh, brings to light the fact that as as was sta- as was said by the prophets as the prophets that that Jesus truly was the prophetical. Messiah that was that was talked about. I mean, it's interesting. Sometimes we read that, but after 400 years, do you think he was just saying that, mm-hmm. as the prophet said, or he goes, "This is what the prophet said," you know? And, and it's just that that level of excitement that he uh, that he probably had that uh, of truly having that that truth. And again, you know, that all beginning with the, the genealogy and how that how Jesus fits into that.
0: When we first discussed Matthew 1, we talked a little more at length about genealogies. And when they had a genealogy, when you bought or sold property, everything was related back to the tribe that you were from. And so if you're coming out of the Babylonian captivity, then the Medo-Persian, then the Greek, your tribe stuff might have been, if everything was burnt down or destroyed, you had a hard time to prove. So genealogies were very important to them because it allowed them to buy and sell or keep their land within their tribe. And then also if when the priests wanted to come back and participate in temple worship once again, they had to prove through the genealogy all the way back to Aaron that they were in fact from the tribe of Levi. And if a woman was to if they were to marry a woman, she had to go back 5 generations to prove her genealogy. So genealogies again to that jewish mindset were very very important to them so starting out that is kind of saying i know how important this is to you in the natural let me share with you how important it is now because i'm speaking once again thus saith the lord and he and then starts to proclaim and he starts with the genealogy
1: you just said what would be so natural to the Jewish readers, the knowing their lineage, the knowing their genealogy of where they came from, God using the natural and tying in the supernatural of all these aspects of how God would be a fulfillment or Jesus would be a fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. So neat, just how kind of God uses what would be somewhat natural to them to, to know where they came from, to know how important it is to know, as you were saying, to also make a point to prove And let me show you what I'm about to do with this. And and, and this is what checks all the boxes. Yeah.
0: So if he has a genealogy, why do you think he chose to use four women that wouldn't have been, to a Jewish mind, elevating a woman to that standard wouldn't have been normal. And then he used very imperfect men many times. um, Tamar being obviously a woman, but coming from an incestuous relationship, you've got She's playing a harlot. You've got Rahab, the harlot. Um, you've got Ruth, a Moabitess. and you've got um, David's wife, Bathsheba. It was obviously she was involved in an adulterous relationship, even though we blame David, but she was involved as well. So, if you're going to prove this guy is the guy, why, why go to such lengths to use so many different kinds of people? I
1: one of the things that. I was looking at it and I was thinking through there's obvious the imperfection obviously because there is no perfect human right so yeah. just a practicality of if God wanted to use per, something perfect he would be unable to use us right you think that through but as I was kind of thinking that through I was I even put myself in those shoes thinking through my inability at times to do certain things and, and thinking there's certain things that God calls me to do and there's this inability in me and that has a tendency to get me to rely so greatly on the Lord on those times because I understand and I know my inability. And so just thinking through of God being able to use imperfect people, thinking through one of the reasons would be, and I I know you mentioned a, a, a different reason that ties in with that, but I was thinking through one of the reasons I can see God using us being for the purpose of causing us to be completely reliant upon the Lord to completely trust in him and to know that I can't do this on my own. There's absolutely nothing I can do upon my own work. And as I think through one of the problems that the, as he's talking to the Jewish people that the Jewish reader would have is they relied so much on the law and their own ability to keep the law.
2: Hmm.
1: And so thinking that through just of, of God showing imperfect people and showing the need to understand our inability And knowing the fact that we um, need to rely upon the Lord, as I was just thinking that through practically speaking, I was thinking, yeah, God uses us sometimes, and there's nothing in us that's any good at all. And it leads us just to say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you to help me through this.
2: You know, there's, you know, a scripture that we all know, you know, to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. You know, sometimes it's easier for me to pray for someone else and pray for myself because I know what I deserve, <laughs> you know. And but yet and we, we look to the fact that, you know, we're forgiven. You know, we, we look to John three sixteen that, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And a lot of people really that's their favorite verse, right? But mine's John three seventeen. That that basically said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But that through him we might have everlasting life. And it's it's the difference. Even when he told the disciples, it's good that I go, because I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit will convict. And it's that difference between conviction and, and condemnation that I think we do often do a great job of condemning ourselves. But, you know, even Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, he he says to the Corinthians, you know, God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And, and truly, the, if we really look at that and understand. Just the grace of God. It isn't about using the perfect. There so, in so many aspects of, you know, um, uh, you know, there was a there was a gentleman years ago uh, that that used to, you know, call God's kingdom the upside down kingdom. You know, that that um, would, uh, you know, just doesn't make any sense the way it is. But yet, it makes perfect sense when he when he is such is is setting it all up so the the least of all would feel welcome in
0: finally, I think one of the areas, it's easy for us to see that application. And maybe sometimes God in his infinite wisdom says, this is all true for Jewish people, but there's someday in history, there's going to be a people maybe in 2023 that are wondering how in the world could God use me because I'm imperfect. I've made this mistake. I've done this wrong. And if you look at the sins, you've got everything from adultery, incest, murder, uh, to conniving, kind of the list. It's, it's the, the bad four or five things that you could ever do as a human. They are guilty of those things, and yet they're here. So no matter what you may have done in your life or feel that you've been a part of that would separate you from God, God is saying, no, I can, I can forgive all of that. In fact, the whole point of this chapter is that I'm sending my son. This is how far I've gone to show you that my mercy is sufficient. And I think that's just a great story.
1: You talked about, when you were talking about that, I remember listening, and you are talking about letting go your past. Yeah. What was it, letting go your past to hold on to a, or pursue what God has for you? A, a sure and certain future. Yeah, there it is. And I thought that was so great when I heard it said, and I, I was listening to that, and I was thinking, I was like, that's amazing, and that's absolutely true. The fact of that, you're right, the reader who would read this is thinking, though I have a past, I can let go of that past to know that there's a sure future that God has for me. Amen. And what an encouragement that would be. Amen to that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, scripture tells us, he who has been forgiven much loves much, yeah. you know, and it's and it's really sometimes coming to terms with the fact of our, our unworthiness that even makes us worthy to be used because that's that's true. That's when true humility sets in and we're actually become teachable is when we understand truly what we've been forgiven of. Awesome. Yeah so
1: I think as we started looking at chapter two, um, one of the things that we wanted to address is obviously the name of Jesus ties into every aspect of what we're talking about being um, Yeshua saves or Yeshua salvation and being the mission that Jesus was coming to earth the very purpose of his coming stepping down into earth was to save us as humans and thinking along the lines practically walking through the Jewish community the Jewish culture at this time who was working very hard to obtain a right standing before God based on their own works Even next week as we get into chapter 3, just looking at even as John speaking about what his purpose is and just talking about how God longs for the heart and is calling the people to repent and to turn of every aspect and every way that they're currently on, including religious leaders and including the Jewish community that have made it a point to focus completely on I can obtain a right standing before God based on my own works and just walking through how important would it be for the readers to come face to face with that. The reality of your works will never be good enough. Your works of keeping the law will never obtain a right standing before God. And because of that, God would say, I have made a way for you to find a right standing with me. So how important would you think it is for the community here that's reading this, for the Jewish reader, how important it is that for us as people in our culture, even around the the culture that we're in, for people to understand my own works, no matter how good I may try, are never good enough to obtain a right standing before God. We will think
0: Go ahead, John. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, there's... There's a mouthful there. I was <laughs> going, and then you've got all these scriptures in Romans that talks about how God um, made the way, provided the way. One verse that, um, when I was reading this, and I was just looked now, it's in Romans ten thirteen, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as complicated as it sounds, when you start. We go into his name, what it means. We talk about the law. We talk about the sacrifices, all the things that God did to make that. There is the simplicity of the gospel that cuts to a point. Those that call upon the name, and if you talk about the name already, if you call upon his name shall be saved. And we can complicate it with theology and all kinds of verses and things. But there is a simple reality that the God of the universe has set a standard and To satisfy his justice, he set away. And if we would accept that, align our will with what he's already provided by his grace, we will be saved. So the most profoundest thing in all of history, all humanity, is as simple as those that call upon the Lord will be saved. I mean, that's just a child. Suffer not the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. They can do that. They can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved.
2: You know, it, and, and again, you know, just being mindful of the fact that you know there might be some that are watching right now that that we we truly might not understand that where where you said that for he will save his people from their sins. You know, I think oftentimes we have to be careful. The the Christianese <laughs> we might, and you know, without jumping, I mean, really, Rand, you had mentioned about Romans. You know, though and there's that that those scriptures that we refer to as the Romans Road, you know, that that basically begins in, if we look at um, Romans 3.10, you know, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one, you know, and it goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And then we jump over to um, chapter 6, basically, and and in 6.23, basically, we, we basically see that for the wages of sin is death. But the gift is God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we jump over to back to chapter five, you know, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in the while that we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, not when we got it all together, not all of a sudden, even when we <laughs> even think we have it together, right? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, and then we jump into, if we, you know, over so what is the what is the truth to that? Is it what is how do how are we saved? And if you look at that Romans um chapter ten, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, okay, and with the mouth confession is made under salvation. And really that that is how <laughs> by the name of Jesus that we're saved it's, it's accepting that it's coming to terms with that and, and you know the, I, I believe so much of Matthew is written for that thing okay don't look at anything else Jesus is that he is the Messiah he's the full fulfillment and as we go through these various sections it's just so exciting to see that, that um, you know he's laying this all out for us in that way
1: I'm going to throw a curveball at you guys oh. what what do you think is one of the things or some of the things that keep people from calling on that name we address the simplicity of calling upon the name of jesus we talked about um, some of the things that it talks about the fact that we're all sinners and that there is a need to call on that name but practically speaking here for the jewish readers as they were reading it, there were certain things that were keeping them from calling on that name their own attempting to obtain righteousness we, we look at it in our culture, what are some things, and maybe there's people even watching, or maybe that we'll see this later, but what are some things you think that can creep up into the life of an individual, even within our culture, that can keep an individual from saying, I don't need to call on the name of Jesus. Just thinking through even of the rich young ruler that Jesus spoke with, and well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, do X, Y, and Z. Well, I, I've done that already just the thought of i think i'm okay already what do you think Randy?
0: i think on the simplest level most people understand if you're going to accept god on his terms then i'm going to have to follow through on it and usually there's something in their life they don't want to give up whether it's a moral thing or as the rich young ruler it was his riches I mean, it's interesting. The rich young ruler, he told him, go give everything you have to the poor. When Zacchaeus, when Jesus called him down, he gave 50% of the things back and that was okay. And you say, wait a minute, how come the guy that gave, he was called to give everything. Zacchaeus only gave 50% and it was acceptable. And then you realize it had nothing to do with how much. It's what still had your heart. What were you clinging on to that you didn't want to give up? Zacchaeus, 50%, oh, 70 He didn't care. He just picked the number, and God said, that's fine. I know your heart. Rich Young Ruler said, I need everything because if it's not everything. It's nothing. So I think culturally today we have things that we just don't want to give up, whether it's freedom, time, whether it's moral decisions or economics. I think there's things we just don't want to give up, and they got a hold of us more often
2: you know it's interesting because i think it's twofold i completely agree with with what randy says i mean i look back at my life and and what it took for me to let go and let god so to speak what it took for me to actually get come to an end of myself and i remember uh when i first started going through it i thought okay i'm going to be a good person you know i'm going to get these 10 commandments and i'm going to memorize the 10 commandments and i'm going to do these things because that was the upbringing that I have, that was the hope that I had of, of um, finding my way to the Lord was or making my way to the Lord. But again, as you, as you look at that, that's works. And the beauty of what the Lord allowed me to see in the midst of uh, trying to keep the Ten Commandments is I couldn't. But you know, one of the things that always got me was it appeared that there were these Christians that just had it all together. You know, I remember so many people over the years that come in and then they disappear for a little bit and go, "Where you been?" And they say, "I come in here and it just seems like everybody has everything so together." And I think that's one of the challenges is oftentimes that will keep somebody is, "Well, when I get my life together, then I'll then I'll come to the Lord." And I thank God so much that He some He He often allows us to get to come come to such an end of ourselves that as Randy had pointed out, there is no other option. <laughs> You know, and, and the beauty of that is we, at that point, we come to him as, as um, you know, Paul even talked about as the bond servant. Lord, I don't care. <laughs> I just, I just, I need you. I need you. And the beauty of that, once we come to him and just give it to him and, and try, quit trying to be, is when we truly begin understanding and, and receiving all that he has for us in, in such a beautiful way. And then, you know, we, we then progress and, and really realize that, you know, that what, what grace is all about. And it isn't all about what I can do. And, you know, oftentimes when I'm trying to do everything, I fall miserably short, And
0: but yet his love is still there. Hey, can I throw you a curve? Well, I was just looking at one of your questions here, and you say Joseph was a man of great character. He trusted in God's promises. So when you shared earlier, you shared how he could have put her away but he didn't. So the question, I guess, if God wouldn't have come and told him that, he had every option to put her away. He didn't want to. He said he wanted to do it secretly. So where did Joseph get, before God told him, what was the source of Joseph's character that would have kept him from doing you know, later on when the Pharisees, they tried to trick Jesus into condemning and all kinds of things, just quick snap judgments. But Joseph wasn't like that. So where did that come from? It How to have stemmed from him
1: being a man from a young age, either was raised in such a, such a way to fear God, mm-hmm. or was a man who understood and took it to heart himself. I, I'm convinced that he was a man that had a great longing to please God. And there's a reason why God would choose to use a man that way. A man you think of like David. When God would speak of him of of being a man after his own heart. A man who had a a heart that loved God. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. But God knowing that there was a man there that had a heart that longed for him and longed to please him. And I'd, I'd have to think through the fact that Joseph was able to distinct that this was the Lord speaking to him. The fact that after he woke up and heard and was willing to obey, you, you're, you have to presuppose that there was a heart already there that was already longing and pursuing after God.
0: Yeah, he obeyed four times. <laughs> I mean, it really... Well, if you, if
2: you look to, I mean, and, and Jesus even, what, and I think the, what you just said was what Jesus, in, in, in John chapter 10, where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they have, and they follow me. You know, the, the, uh, you know, Lance and the, the group are in uh, Israel right now, and I remember the story he told us one time of how they went into the marketplace and a, uh, all these sheep were out there, but this one shepherd makes a noise, and all of a sudden, all of his sheep <laughs> go. And, and, you know, that there's something about that shepherd that, that, that's whispering into the ear of his sheep and that, you know, uh, the, the, the familiarity. And, and that you know, I don't know. Do you, to have that level of trust you know, that, that that when you hear that, you know, it wasn't a, like you said, Randy, it wasn't a small decision that he made. He knew that was a life-changing decision that he, if, if that wasn't the Lord, he was entering a, into a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. But yet he, he had that peace that you talked about because he knew, he knew the Lord.
1: Yeah. Now, we keep going on and talking about that then. And I addressed a few different things of how God reassured him and directed his life but i thought for the sake of believers for the sake of us and being practical with it we addressed a little bit about maybe the person that hasn't given their life over to the lord or maybe who doesn't understand that yet but maybe now focusing a little bit on the believer and understanding how god is speaking to joseph here and tying in the promises given in the old testament and how this act now was the fulfillment of some of those promises. Just thinking along the lines, how important it is to know some of the promises found within God's word that he's given to each believer, that how important is it to know those promises and how does it change the perspective of an individual? We think through how this decision could have been completely different on Joseph's mind. If he would have done something different, it would have altered his life, altered the life of Mary, if he would have gone around a different way. So think through... The promises found within God's Word, and there's many that we can draw from. But understanding those promises within God's Word, how that has the ability of changing our perspective in certain situations, in difficulties, in hardships. How that has the ability of changing our perspective and has the ability of allowing us to go through difficult times. Yeah.
0: It's funny, and this probably isn't the direction you were headed, but as you said that, I'm thinking today there's so many self-help books and little self-help gurus out there, even pastors that are just trying to present the promises, just kind of cherry-pick things out there. And, you know, God wants you happy. God wants you to have a good life, and they'll use Scripture to do that. So I think the pro- it's not just the promise. It's not just the words, but it's who's behind the words. Some promises are empty in people. That's why they'll be disappointed because there's nothing behind them. And yet the promises that we get from the scriptures and we understand who's the author of those promises, what we're really trusting in is that the author will be true to his word. Otherwise, the promise is meaningless. If your kids don't think you're going to follow through and spank them, if they do something wrong, they keep doing it. (laughs) I don't care what you promise, what threat you have. If they don't think you're going to follow through, they keep doing it. The same way we react and respond spiritually because we believe he's going to follow through like he said. And so it's it's not, I guess, within your statement, the promise is coming from Almighty God. Therefore, it's a little different than an empty well, promise a, of the world.
2: There's a, a twist on it, I guess you'd almost call it, or not really a twist, but kind of an application. You know, in Psalm 119, we we're Your word I have hidden in my heart, so I'll not sin against you. And, and it's, there's a difference between memorizing Scripture and truly just taking it on, you know. I mean, we see Jesus when he's when he's battling with Satan in the you know in the desert. He, three times he battles. Three times he uses scriptures, you know. But yet, there's scriptures such as you know in Isaiah, you know, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you, or something as simple as, "Be still and know that I am God," you know. And 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 so those little just just vignettes, you know. We we some of the the tables, you know, they were we we have these these different scriptures that that we can we can hold on to but you know ultimately it's just believing you know that you know encourage you those of you that are at home you know we're running short of time so read I, I, 2 Timothy 316 you know write it down 2 Timothy 316 that is a very important scripture that really points to exactly what the purpose is of scripture and and where it's from if we truly believe that where it's from and the purpose of it we can we can truly find the so, okay. okay.
0: Hey could we go uh, live in the house here for a second? Oh test. Okay. I'm sure you're having a great time up there and you didn't get anywhere near finished. But we want to make sure we make time for communion. Um, so have someone at your table. Um, kind of take the lead on that. And sometimes the easiest thing to do is go to 1 Corinthians 11, read verses 23 to 28. Uh, and then perhaps if there's a pressing need or someone needs some, to share something, you know, pray for one another. And then um, we'll close with that. So go ahead and uh, let's take communion together, and we're gonna do that here online. You know, those of you that... We need to kill.
2: (laughs) Kill it down, we're going back. You know, this is so exciting that we would do communion tonight because the culmination of um, everything that we're talking about and Jesus coming is really just kind of tied up in, in exactly this portion of scripture, you know? At the Last Supper, one of the things that there's a lot of things that took place at the Last Supper, but one of the things that Jesus did um, is recounted for us here by Paul in the in the uh, in the first letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna go over that. But you know, those of you that uh, just if we can take a moment, I know that we're um, coming to the end of our time together, but you know, I want to encourage you, those at home that that haven't. Um, you know, accept the Lord as your as your personal Lord and Savior. I want to take a moment and and just if that's you, you know, just we're going to take a moment and give you the opportunity. So if if that is what you desire, if you desire a relationship with the Lord, just pray with me, dear Lord. I I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. I believe that you died for my sins, and that you rose from the dead, Lord. I turn my life over to you. And Lord, I invite you to come into my life, my heart. And Lord, make a difference in me. Lord, I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. You know, if you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to run and grab some crackers and some juices we told you and just have this time for with us. But um, jumping back over to um, what, what Randy had directed us to here in the, in the book of 1 uh, Corinthians, the letter, first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 11, this is what Paul said. He says, for, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me so as we as we take of the um the the juice here you know it's symbolic of exactly that of of jesus's blood being shed for us and understanding that that wasn't a a shedding of blood for the covering of our sins that was the shedding of the blood for the eternal washing away of our sins so let's partake together And Paul goes on to say, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. I'm sorry, and, w- <laughs> and backwards. <laughs> I'm sorry. The uh, let me start over again. Ta- uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He broke the bread, and he said, "Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." I apologize. Did a little backwards got a little beside myself so again as we as we take of the bread I apologize and again in like manner he said he took the cup after supper saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood this dew is often used to drink it in remembrance of me and again um, realizing that uh, this that we took did it backwards but still means the same thing it's his, it's his broken body. It's his blood that was shed for us. And, um, you know, the uh, the hope and the prayer is that, as it says here, for as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, till he comes. And uh, Lord, uh, as we uh, come together tonight, Lord, we we pray. Lord, come quickly. Maranatha. Anything else you guys want to share? So is it okay to do it backwards like
0: that? I've I've never done it backwards <laughs> before. It backwards I'm expecting myself. a miracle to happen tonight. You know what's interesting, because we're in Matthew. We've done we're kind of doing the introduction and then next week I guess with John the Baptist. We're still not, because in John chapter four or Matthew four seven he, he basically says, um, what does it say it here? Somewhere. Oh, from this time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that his ministry starts there in chapter 4. When he gets to chapter 16, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. So Matthew says, basically, we just introduced it, what we've gone through tonight and jesus then proclaims the gospel the good news and then it's the recognition that he came to die and the joy of his death was what we celebrated here tonight in the communion that it wasn't just a a death an empty tomb but a risen savior that accomplished all that god had prepared beforehand
2: it's a perfect example of what we were talking about. God can use imperfection to do his perfect work. Not that that, was the, not that that was the idea behind it. but.
0: So any final concluding thoughts on Matthew 1 and 2 that kind of come to your mind to synthesize or, synthesized or that kind of before we run into Matthew 3 next week or whenever we do that?
1: You know... We're going to be talking about this next week. And so thinking about everything we've been looking about is presenting Matthew presenting Jesus as being the king. And so when you get to John, John is now the forerunner and he's addressing here, I've come to prepare the way for the king that's coming. But talking about that, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and, and you'll see that being used a lot throughout this um, gospel, the kingdom. But just thinking through, you look at that word and you begin to break that down, that kingdom talking about both a region, a specific place, a specific area, but also talking about the practical side of to rule over something. And the Lord was just really ministering to me as I was, I was looking at that, and studying. Everything that John is saying is very much that, that God's desire, the king who's coming, longs to be the king over our hearts. So everything we're looking at and everything that we're addressing, I think the main focus of what Matthew and the Gospels itself is God's desire to be the one, as you mentioned earlier, to be the one that's sitting on the throne of our hearts. And how often there are so many different things that sit on that heart, whether it's hobbies, time, money, different jobs, careers, different things where God would say, my desire, the reason I've come is to grab a hold of your heart to enter into this relationship with me. And so if there's one thing that I'm kind of, the Lord's been putting on my heart as we go through chapter one and chapter three of all this talk of the King is here, the coming of the King is God's longing, not just to rule a place, but to say, I've come that I would rule over your heart.